Well, let me give my welcome as well this afternoon. Do please keep uh, Nehemiah 13 open, uh, either physically or uh, electronically. That way you can follow through uh, what we're thinking about uh, this afternoon. Have you ever queued up to buy something the moment it was released? Maybe you queued up overnight to get tickets for Wimbledon, or to get into the Boxing Day sales, or to get your hands on the latest version of Call of Duty for you or one of your children. Uh, Confession time. Uh, I queued up at midnight to buy the last Harry Potter book when it was released back in 2007. I wasn't alone in that. In the first 24 hours of release in the UK alone, 2.65 million copies were sold. So at 11pm, I wandered down to my local Asda store and joined several other hundred eager fans, keen to find out what was happening to Harry, Ron and Hermione. Eve, very sensibly, went to bed. I was about 250th in the queue, But you'd be pleased to know I did eventually get my hands on the book and start reading it before I went to sleep. Now, the last Harry Potter book ends with an epilogue in the final chapter, set 19 years after the events the book speaks about, allowing us to see what happens to the main characters as time moves on. It's fair to say that that epilogue is one of the most controversial elements about that last Harry Potter book. If you don't believe me, you can Google it, but do stand back. If you do, uh, the force of complaint will be quite strong. You see, many didn't want the epilogue. Uh, They wanted the book to finish a chapter earlier. They thought that the epilogue had ruined the ending that they had in their minds. And I wonder, honestly, if we can feel something similar when we come to this final chapter of Nehemiah. We don't really want this epilogue. We would have ended the book a chapter earlier. After all, if you've been tracking with us for the past few weeks, the last few chapters in Nehemiah have been positive and uplifting, almost euphoric. The people of Israel have confessed their sins and expressed deep commitment to honour God moving forward, to support those involved in the temple worship, to distance themselves from the surrounding nations. The city of Jerusalem is repopulated. The walls that meant security have been rebuilt and now dedicated in a ceremony full of joy and thanksgiving and praise of God. That's the good place to end the book, isn't it? Go out on a high. No need for a divisive epilogue. Well, Nehemiah thought differently. He included this final chapter in his book. But, Let's be honest, it's a pretty downbeat ending, isn't it? Despite the highs of the previous few chapters, the book ends on something of a low as Nehemiah comes slap bang face to face with some serious issues in the community of Israel. The very sins that Israel has pledged to avoid just a few chapters earlier. Three times in this chapter we read of him having to rebuke people. Look at verse 11 and verse 17. Uh, And verse 25, striking, isn't it? Three times he has to rebuke. He describes the things he's encountering in really unflattering terms. Look at verse 7, they are evil. Or or verse 17, they are wicked. Or verse 27, terribly wicked. And actually an expression of unfaithfulness to God. 
you see, despite the massive gains that Nehemiah has achieved, the people are still prone to wander from God and to slip back into old patterns of sinful behaviour. Not very uplifting, but wonderfully honest. And that's why this chapter is important today. See, the epilogue reminds us that godliness, holiness, obedience to God is not automatic, but won't be achieved unless we put in grace-driven effort. Without this, we will drift away from God rather than towards God. That was the experience of Israel of old. And this final chapter helps us to face up to these ongoing challenges that will come to us in our Christian lives and as we live together as Kenilworth Community Church. And see, acknowledging that reality gives us permission, doesn't it then, to to be open about our struggles, to identify with these things in our own lives, to have realistic expectations about what our life as individuals and community should be like. We're going to see here in this final chapter three particular struggles for God's people then and three particular struggles for God's people now. Three temptations we need to watch out for. Nehemiah sought to tackle these three issues head on and we need similar courage to tackle them in our hearts and lives in church today. Issue number one. The first issue that Nehemiah had to deal with was neglecting God's house. An issue of neglecting God's house. That's really verses 4 through to 14. That's the charge Nehemiah brings against the officials. Look at verse 11. Hear his question. Why is the house of God neglected? That's the language he uses. Well, God's house, the temple in Jerusalem where God symbolically dwelt among his people and where sacrifices were offered to deal with the people's sins, was being neglected in two ways. Uh, Way number one. At some point in his time as governor, Nehemiah had had to return to the Persian court to go and see the king. That was where he was living when the book opened. And in his absence, things take a distinctively downward turn, just like how a class of children can soon go wild when the restraining presence of the teacher leaves the room. We read that one of the priests, one of the religious leaders even, this man called Eliashib in verse 4, has given a room in the temple to Tobiah. Now that might not sound a big deal to us, but it is a big deal for Nehemiah. Listen to his words, verse 7. I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased. Why is this action so evil? Well, you may remember, Tobiah cropped up in the early chapters of the book as one of the enemies of God's people, one of the clans who were opposed to the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. So here, right at the centre of Israelite religious life, space is being given to one of the enemies of God's people. You see, Tobiah is not the sort of tenant that should be lodging in God's house. It's like inviting Keir Starmer to address the Conservative Party conference. It's it's, it's just wrong, except here it's much more serious. This is a mark of spiritual compromise with the enemies of God's people. 
And this meant practically that the smooth running of the temples disrupted. Religious services are ceasing, verse 5, because all the paraphernalia of those services has, has had to kind of leave the temple. And that mattered because the healthy functioning of the temple was essential if the people were to maintain a right relationship with God. Well, no wonder Nehemiah got stuck in to try and solve the problem. He threw all Tobias stuff out of the temple. He ordered the rooms to be purified. Think of it like a pre-COVID version, spiritually sanitising the surfaces to, to remove contamination. And then he put back all the equipment for the smooth running of the temple that had been put elsewhere. That's the first way the temple was neglected. The second way was because the people had failed to practically support the Levites so that they could perform their religious duties in the temple. You see, the Levites were dependent on their fellow Israelites for resources to live because they didn't have any inherited lands like the rest of the other tribes did. I guess they were a bit like church leaders today who can give themselves to ministry full time because the church is supporting them financially. It's kind of like that dynamic. But things are broken. Look at verse 10. The portions assigned to the Levites, so they could live and be looked after, had not been given to them. So the Levites have been forced to work on, stop work on the temple in order to work on providing for themselves. And so the religious activities that they were supposed to be doing have stopped. And that's bad news when stuff at the temple ceases. That's always bad news for Israel. So Nehemiah, the action man that he is, steps in, rebukes the officials, calls the Levites back, and puts in place a structure to stop these mistakes happening again. See, Nehemiah was committed to stand against neglect of God's house. Neglect of God's house. It's the first big issue Nehemiah comes up against in the hearts of the people. So, we need to ask ourselves, what does it look like for us, maybe, to neglect God's house? Well, as the rest of the Bible unfolds, we see the New Testament picks up the language of the temple in Jerusalem and applies it to the church, to God's people. It speaks of the church as a spiritual house, a temple, complete with priests, you and me, who offer spiritual sacrifices to God. So we need to watch out for any tendency in our hearts that would lead us to neglect the church. And that might mean loads of things. So I just want to talk about one of them. I think one way we might neglect the church is by thinking somehow that we don't need the church. That the church is an optional extra, either for the super keen or for the super needy. We slip into thinking about our Christian lives in an individual way. We, we speak about my relationship with God. And, of course, there's wonderful truth there, isn't it? All of us do have an individual relationship with God. We we do have individual faith in Jesus. Of course we do. And yet, that can lead us to think that we're somehow in the Christian race on our own. That we can grow perfectly well in our independence with our other Christians around us. And so we come to church as an individual consumer, Concerned for what we can get out of it. 
Or we become irregular in our attendance as we don't feel we need to be there. Or we keep our distance from other Christians as if we can grow more like Jesus in isolation from one another. And let's be honest, those tendencies have been ratcheted up to 11 because of COVID. But to think that way is to neglect God's house. You see, I need other Christians to to pray for me and to rebuke me and to cheer me on when I battle sin. And so do you. I need the ministry of KCC, both formally on a Sunday and informally from you, to keep reminding me of, uh, so that I can become all that God has for me. And so do you. I need others to keep telling me the gospel. Otherwise I'll forget it. And stop following Jesus. And so do you. And I'm not going to labour the point, but that has an irreducible, face-to-face, embodied, together element. Think of what happens when you do your summer barbecues. It's really the weather for that today, isn't it? Maybe you're looking forward to one when church is over. I don't do the barbecues in our house. Eve does them. She's far more skilled than I am. But the basic theory I've got under my belt. You put all the lumps of charcoal together. You set fire to them, and they kind of help keep each other hot. They kind of pass the heat from one to another. That's the basic idea. If you take one piece of charcoal away from the rest, it soon loses its heat and and, and goes out. It can't sustain itself on its own. It's only when it's with others that it keeps its heat. It's the same with us as Christians, isn't it? We lose heat if we're cut off from other believers. Let's just recognise that and understand that's part of why God calls us into his church. So what change is God calling you to make so that you don't neglect God's house? That's the first issue, neglect of God's house. The second issue that Nehemiah deals with that's relevant for God's people then and today is the issue of desecrating the Sabbath. That's verses 15 through to 22. Desecrating the Sabbath As Nehemiah did a bit of a field trip around Judah, let's read what he saw, verse 15. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath was supposed to be a day of rest for Israel. But when Nehemiah did his field trip around Judah, all he saw was work going on. And Israel was also tolerating the presence of non-Israelites among them who were wanting to work as well, as verse 16 makes clear. And again, that might not seem a big deal for us. But listen to Nehemiah's response, verse 18. What is this wicked thing you were doing? Sorry, it's verse 17 desecrating the Sabbath day. Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. Pretty strong language, isn't it? He accuses Israel of risking history repeating itself because a failure to honour the Sabbath was a reason for their exile away from the land in the first place. 
They're playing a dangerous game and they run the risk of incurring more divine wrath if things don't change because of their attitude to the Sabbath. Let me try and kind of unpick kind of how that works. It's the time of year when you or your children might be asked to pet sit for other people when they go on holiday. So imagine you or your children have been asked to pet sit for one of your friend's hamsters, say. Now, if you look after the hamster, but you you don't feed it, uh, you don't change its bedding, you don't get out and play with it, you kind of neglect that hamster, what is that saying about your relationship with your friend? See, ultimately, what you're saying is that you don't really value your friend because you're not really valuing what they've asked you to do. And it's like that with the Sabbath, which God has commanded. See, a lack of concern for Sabbath shows a lack of concern for God. That's why Nehemiah goes in so strong. That's why he posts a guard on the gates of Jerusalem to stop anyone entering to trade on the Sabbath. That's why he's so committed to stand against any desecration of the Sabbath. That's the second issue Nehemiah gets involved with, desecration of the Sabbath. So, what might it look like for us to be guilty of this, to to desecrate the Sabbath? Well, rather than get involved in detailed discussions about what you should do on Sunday, those debates have their place, just not now, I want us just to kind of take a step back, and I want to suggest to you that desecrating the Sabbath fundamentally involves thinking that we're self-sufficient. You see, Israel of old was to keep the Sabbath as a reminder that they were limited, that they needed to rest, that they couldn't keep going 24-7 without a break. See, the very structure of their week reinforced and taught them the truth that they were limited, that they were dependent, that they were not self-sufficient. They weren't God's who alone is self-sufficient. They were creatures who needed to stop, to take in, and to be refreshed. I think we find this lesson hard, don't we, to remember today. Life feels speedy and intense and fast. We, we feel the pressure to keep going. We feel like it's impossible to stop sometimes. But we need to be careful. We're not beginning in a subtle but real way to, if you'll pardon the language, desecrate the Sabbath. You see, we, we need to stop. We need to rest. We need to take on physical and spiritual food. We need to remember that we're limited. That's okay. You have permission to, to be limited, because you are. We're not self-sufficient. That's deliberate. We need to stop. That's not a bad thing. Let's be clear, there is never a problem with being human. God has made us that way. So we need to find ways, even if it's hard, to stop and pause and rest. We need to find ways to refresh our hearts in God and remember our dependence on him. Don't believe the lie that you are self-sufficient. You are not God. I am not God. 
We are creatures. Maybe it's time to review your working patterns to ensure that you take off at least one day a week. Maybe it's time to review what activities your children are involved in if you're running headlong from one thing to the next, taking them here, there and everywhere, and it's running you dry. Maybe it's time to live in the freedom that comes from being a human and recognising that you can't be everywhere to everyone all at once, all at the same time. And you don't have to. What change is God calling you to make this afternoon so that you're not guilty? Desecrating the Sabbath. That's the second big issue that Nehemiah deals with. Desecrating the Sabbath. Third and final big issue that Nehemiah deals with is that of intermarrying with the nations. That's there from verse 23 through to 31. Intermarrying with the nations. This had been an ongoing problem for Israel in the past and it rears its ugly head again here. Look at verse 23. In those days, Nehemiah saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, three non-Israelite nations. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, or the language of one of the other peoples, and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. Now, in a week when headlines have been full of racist comments aimed at three young black English football players... We need to be clear that when God raises the issue of intermarriage with the nations, he is not being racist. See, the commands for Israel to not intermarry with the nations were for spiritual reasons, ultimately, and were actually for those nations good. See, Israel was called to be a light to those nations, to demonstrate through their life the beauty and goodness and reality of knowing the true God and being known by him. See, God loves the nations, and he wanted Israel to be a visible witness to them by the way that they lived, so that those nations might be drawn to the true God as well. And a key way this glorious goal would be achieved was through Israel being distinctive in the way that they lived. And so Israel was to avoid intermarrying with those other nations. Those other nations worshipped other gods, which would potentially lead Israel astray and ruin the mission that God had given his people. Which is exactly what happened in Israel's history. Even Solomon, one of the great kings of Israel, we see in verse 26, was led into sin by foreign women. So the lack of Hebrew knowledge that uh, Nehemiah encounters amongst this younger generation is not a race issue, but it's a spiritual issue. That's why Nehemiah goes in so hard. Look at verse 25. I rebuked them, these men, and called down curses on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. It's not quite how we do pastoral care today, but it was good then. See, Israel being guilty of sins in the past here, would they make the same mistake again? It's a crunch moment. And Nehemiah's charge is clear in verse 25. You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Nehemiah determined to stand against anything that's smacked of intermarrying with the nations. That's the third issue, intermarrying with the nations. So what does that mean for us today? 
Well, this does speak into the kind of people that, if we're being honest, we should seek romantic relationships with, doesn't it? The Bible's clear, Christians should only marry other Christians, regardless of their racial background now. That it is spiritually dangerous to get too close emotionally and physically to someone who isn't a believer. Maybe that's a lesson for you today, if you're here or listening online. But thinking a little bit more widely, I think this issue goes to the heart of our fundamental identity, answering the question, who are we? You see, by intermarrying with the nations, Israel is downplaying their distinct identity, they're they're blending in, they're wanting to look the same as everybody else. And that's always a temptation for God's people. We all too easily want to look and sound and act like everybody else. But we have a different identity as Christians. And so, therefore, we should look and sound and act differently from others. Not in a weird way. Not in a kind of off-putting, kind of old-fashioned way, where we're hung up on things that have got more to do with our culture than the Bible. But we should be different in beautiful and attractive and compelling ways. Listen to what the Apostle Peter says. Our new identity, you, he says, are a chosen people. A royal priesthood, God's special possession, a holy nation. And he goes on to tell us our new purpose, our new call. Declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He urges us as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against our souls. Live such good lives among the pagans, he says. So let's take to heart our new identity. We are recipients of God's staggering grace, God's utter undeserved mercy that's transformed us in beautiful and profound ways. Let's take to heart our new purpose to declare God's praises to others around us, to fight sin in our hearts and to live beautiful lives before our non-Christian friends and colleagues and neighbours. What changes is God calling you to make this afternoon so you don't intermarry with the nations? Well, friends, we might have ended the book of Nehemiah a chapter earlier without this epilogue. But it's here for our benefit. It provides us with stark warnings against neglecting God's house, desecrating the Sabbath, and intermarrying with the nations. So we should be grateful for this epilogue, and we should feel the challenge it brings us to seek grace-driven holiness. That won't happen without effort. We should heed the warning of this chapter that without this effort, we will drift spiritually, just like Israel of old did. What do we do if, like me, we're conscious of times when we haven't heeded these warnings? What is there for us if we know all too well we're guilty of neglecting God's house and desecrating the Sabbath or intermarrying with the nations? Well, there is good news for us. Because the end of the book of Nehemiah deliberately then throws us forward to a time when someone would suffer bleed and die to pay for those sins and every other sin.
to a time when someone would be crucified for every time I and you and we think we don't need the church or act as if we're self-sufficient or believe that we should take our identity from the culture around us to a time when someone would rise to new life so he could pour out strength into our hearts so that we can fight these temptations today. See, there is grace and forgiveness and hope through faith in Jesus. Because the tension at the end of Nehemiah is clear, isn't it? Despite all that Nehemiah has done, and he's poured his life into this work, more is needed. Yeah, the people are back in the land. Uh, Yes, they're in a rebuilt city. And yes, they're safe. All good things. And yet that hasn't solved the problem of the people's hearts. See, they don't ultimately need a new address or new defences so much as they need new hearts. And that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus lived and died and rose again. That's why our hope is in him. That's why this afternoon we can face up to our sin honestly, confessing it, knowing that Jesus has already died to pay for it. And that he is at work in our lives now by his spirit to renew us and change us and transform us to be like him. That's why we can enjoy this epilogue and let it lead us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. So we find our rest in him today. Why don't we take a moment of quiet in our hearts just to respond to what God has said. Maybe something struck you from this chapter you want to just pray about, talk to God about. A moment of quiet and then I will lead us in a prayer. Father, thank you that all the Bible is given to us for our good. And Father, we want to believe that's even the case for this very challenging chapter in Nehemiah. It's not how we would have ended the book. And yet in your wisdom, it's how you've ended the book. Help us please to listen to what you are saying to us from this part of the Bible. Give us humble hearts, we pray, to feel the challenge. Do not drift. Do not go back to familiar patterns of wrong belief and behaviour that have marked the people of Israel here. Help us in our own ways to work out what it means to not neglect your house, to, to not desecrate your Sabbath, to not intermarry with the nations. Father, I've suggested a few things, but there are many things that it will mean for us. Please, by your spirit now, just press that home to us where we need to change, we pray. And Father, as we do so, please turn our eyes once again to Jesus. Father, we don't put our faith and confidence in ourselves, in our own ability. We put our faith and confidence in him again this afternoon. The one who lived the life we could never live. The one who died the death that was ours by rights. The one who was raised to life to bring us forgiveness and new relationship with you. The pioneer and perfecter of faith. Help us please, therefore, to fix our eyes on Jesus And look beyond Nehemiah, wonderful and good and amazing as he was, to one greater than Nehemiah, the Lord Jesus, our King, 
our champion, our husband, our shepherd, our treasure, our joy and our great reward, we pray. Father, may that be true for us by your Spirit's powerful help and ministry with us, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.